At this time, the children are dismissed for Children's Church. They can go. They have been awaiting patiently. The rest of us, um, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. To Psalm 1. Now, it's interesting that Psalm 1, now, when they put the Psalter, um, or the the book of Psalms, together, they did not uh, put it together in a chronological order. As a matter of fact, when we think about the Psalms and how they were placed together, Psalm 90 was probably the first Psalm ever written. Uh, Psalm 126 was probably the last Psalm, but, you know, after about a thousand years after the first one, Psalm 90, the compilers put them in a particular order based on design, and they put Psalm 1 and 2 at the very beginning of the Psalms so that they would give us wisdom. And and it's really a preface for all of the Psalms to teach us, you know, what are we to think and how are we to live. And it really talks about two different types of individuals. It talks about those who are blessed and those who are not blessed. It talks about those who will be joyful in in, in the Lord, and it will talk about those who will be cursed and and who will actually undergo the, the righteous judgment of the Lord. He likens them to a tree, those who are blessed to a tree, and he likens those who face the judgment of the Lord as chaff that the wind blows away. Now, in 1999, uh, I was in seminary, and I had a uh, seminary professor named Steve Childers, and Steve Childers encouraged us in the midst of his class to take a retreat. And I thought, okay, this would be great. I'm in seminary, and we're supposed to take a retreat. So I actually took my Bible, and I took a chair. We were in Oviedo, which is around Orlando. And I actually went to a retreat center that was about maybe four or five miles away from the campus with my chair and my Bible. And I said, okay, I'm going to just spend my about four or five hours just by myself, you know, studying the Word of God. And, And one of the things that I found was that it was really, really hard to be by myself with just me and my Bible for about four hours. And at that time, you know, it's 1999, so I didn't have a cell phone yet, uh, which was glorious. And so I wasn't distracted. I was only distracted in my own heart and mind. And one of the things that I fell upon was Psalm 1. I said, well, if there's Psalm 1, I've got four hours, what can I do? And so I spent the time, at least probably an hour, hour and a half, just trying to memorize Psalm 1. And I will say that the practice and the exercise of memorizing Psalm 1 has benefited me for the last 23 years, because I just think about it constantly, because when you hide the Word of God in your heart, when you're by yourself and you don't have your Bible, you begin to dwell upon and meditate on the the Word of God, and you go, okay, so how does this apply for me? And I, I think that I thought about Psalm 1 probably more so than any other Psalm, and it's because of that retreat that was so hard where I had to spend time just with myself and my Bible and with the Lord. So, I say that uh, just because um, I want the kids to have time to get to their class. <laughs> and I also want you to know that we, I've thought about this um, for a while. So, um, hear the word of the Lord. Let me read it. Um, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So, let me tell you where we are as we work our way through this. I want you to see, first of all, that there is happiness and there is blessedness. Now, this, this word blessedness, you know, and, and the first point is this, that we have rejoicing and lasting happiness is possible in the Word of God. So, there's three R's I want to work through today. The first is rejoicing and lasting happiness is possible in the Word of the Lord. Now, that's the first R. Let me say this, that this is talking about blessed, blessed. In the Hebrew, it actually has blessed twice. It's sort of blessed, blessed. So there's this idea in Hebrew poetry when you want to say something and magnify it, you repeat it. And it's blessed, blessed. It's this idea of, and this Hebrew word blessed, is, it's this idea of being supernaturally happy, fully blissful, genuinely satisfied, Deep down in your soul, I want you to think about that. This, this idea of happiness, fullness, satisfaction deep down in your soul. Supreme blessedness that belongs to true believers. There's this, this idea that we see and we're confronted with in Psalm 1 that happiness is actually achievable. You know, when we come to faith in Christ, it's not as if we're just, you know, uh, biting a bullet here on earth awaiting joy in heaven. You know, we're not supposed to be people who just walk around as if we're in a constant state of a funeral procession. But rather, Psalm 1 says that there is happiness and joy that is attainable and possible for the children of the Lord. Now, What's interesting about that is that um, John 15 actually speaks these words. Jesus says this. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. But get this, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full, that the joy of Christ may be rooted within your hearts, and that your joy might be full in the midst of your life right now. Let's talk about that for a second, because I think that the, the reality is, is that we are living today in a world that is not a very happy place, right? Let me quote Tim Keller um, Tim Keller talks about, you know, our, our modern age, you know, and our modern age scorns the ancient. And, and by modern, he means this, that, you know, sometime around the 18th century, you know, we had the, the French Enlightenment, and we had German idealism, and we had British empiricism all working themselves out sometime. And, and the thought was that now we have the tools to solve the problems of life through this German idealism, this French enlightenment, and this British empiricism. We can solve all of life's problems. 
The question is, how have we done given those things? How have we done in our modern age with all the, of our technology and empiricism? Have we made progress? Now, Tim Keller says this, and I think this is very true. He says, technology has made life in this world physically safer. Physically safer. Like, praise the Lord for penicillin, right? I mean, praise the Lord for, for smallpox vaccines and those types of things. Like, technology has made us physically safer, right? And yet, let's think about this. Um, are we happier than our ancestors? If you read the journals and diaries of our ancestors, and do you see as much about boredom or self-pity or despair as we do today? And he actually says, I think that you can make the case that they were happier than we are given their lack of technology and what they had. It's interesting. You see, physical comfort, the, the Bible says that what makes you happy and unhappy is a spiritual, not a physical issue. And the Bible talks about us pursuing happiness, pursuing being blessed. Um, I joked today uh, with the worship team earlier uh, that there was a song written in 1965, and some of its lyrics go like this. Uh, when I'm driving in my car, when a man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. Some of you might know what that is. Another line from it is, when I'm watching my TV and a man comes on and tells me how white my shirt can be, but he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me, and he goes on and on, I can't get no satisfaction. Some of you know that that's a 1960 five song by the Rolling Stones um, by Keith Richard and Mick Jagger. There is this sense in which we cannot get satisfaction. We are looking for happiness. Even by today's standards, I want you to think about this. This is, you know, from the American Mental Health Association, that nearly 50 million or almost 20% of American adults experience mental illness in 2019. That's in 2019. That's pre-COVID. 15% of youth experienced a major depressive episode in the past year. Um, 10.6% of over, or over 2.5 million youth in the U.S. have severe major depression, and this rate was highest among those who identify as more than one race at 14.5%. There is this longing for us to be well, but also to have peace. And this blessedness, and again, the original Hebrew talks about it being of plural intensity. A plural intensity that, that blessedness and happiness and joy that comes from the Father is actually offered to us. And I want you to think about it in this way. It's not um, as if we go to God and he gives us an eyedropper of blessedness or happiness, but rather um, he gives us a bucket full. And by a bucket full, I mean, how many of you guys have ever been to the Great Wolf Lodge? Okay, if you haven't been to the Great Wolf Lodge, one of the greatest things of the Great Wolf Lodge, there's a big, massive bucket that every like five or six minutes fills up with, I gotta, I gotta remember, I wrote it down. Um, you know, it fills up with a thousand gallons of water. 
And then after that fills up with a thousand gallons of water, all the children run underneath it, and this thousand gallons of water falls over this thing called Fort McKenzie, and then it falls upon the fort, and then it just lavishes on the children who are just screaming and having a great time. And they call that little splash area um, the Latsa Water Dump Zone. The Latsa Water Dump Zone. And I would like for us to think about when we look to our Father in heaven who is lavish with his grace, that we want to stand underneath this Lada Grace Dump Zone, if we can say it like that, right? We, we come and we say, Lord, you're not going to give us an eyedropper of blessing, but you're going to pour forth blessing upon blessing upon your children because you love us. You love us so much that you actually sent your son to die for us. This lots of fun zone. So again, when we think about this, that happiness is actually attainable. The difficulty is I think that many people become very, very cynical uh, throughout their life. We'll get to that in a little bit. Second point of my three points today is that this psalm causes us to rank our allegiances by the word of God. We all have allegiances. And by allegiances, I mean what we follow, what we place ourselves under. And so the Word of God asks us to rank our allegiances and for us to place Jesus and the Word of God above all other allegiances. You see, happiness is possible, and, but real happiness is a fundamental happiness and not a circumstantial happiness found in externals. You see, if you seek your happiness in externals, you will never find it. Never. Happiness does not consist, or, or joyful, joyfulness does not consist in what happens to you, but what you are and what you're rooted in. Let me give you an example. I remember about four or five years ago, uh, I picked up a golf club to start playing golf again. And I thought in my heart, I'm like, Lord, and I, might, I might even have said this, I just want to shoot one round in the 80s. It could be 89. I'm not selfish. I just want to shoot one round in the 80s. And you know, by the, the Lord's grace and probably some, some, some tricky math, I did that. <laughs> but you know what happens when you shoot an 88 or an 89? It's not good enough. And then it goes, Lord, I just really, really want to be in the mid-80s. The, then I'll be happy right? That's a foolish example, but it's, it's indicative of what happens in the midst of our lives. It's never enough. If we base our happiness and our joy on externals, we will never be satisfied. Now, what Jesus tells us, this is interesting. If you, if you turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, you know, um, look, look at Matthew chapter 6, verses, um, you know, really 25 through 34, but really the latter half of this. I love this because Jesus says, blessed, you know, blessed are, are what? Blessed are, he never says this. He never says, blessed are those who pursue blessedness. If you pursue blessedness, you will never attain it. But you are blessed if you do these things. Like, for example, 
In Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And now, now go down to um, a little ways. He says, O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek, look at what he says. He says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So notice what it says. Don't worry about what you're eating, what you're drinking, what you're wearing. He says, well, well, Jesus, what am I supposed to do then? He says, but first I want you to seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Essentially what he, and really explicitly what Jesus is saying is, is this. He goes, you will have blessedness. You will have joy when you pursue me, not the things of the world. Now, the trouble is, we have a hard time with that. You know, the key to happiness is not controlling your environment, but controlling your allegiances. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. Blessed is the man. So again, blessed, blessed. Happiness, happiness. Who, and then he begins with the negation. He begins with something that's contrary. He says, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, Spurgeon says it like this. He says, when men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and ungodly who forget God. The evil is rather practical than habitual. But after that, they become habituated to evil, and they stand in the way of open sinners who willfully violate God's commandments, and if left alone, they go one step further and become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others, and thus they sit in the seat of the scornful. They have taken their degree in vice, and as true doctors of damnation, they are installed." That's what Spurgeon said. Now, the Hebrew poetry here uh, brings us into sort of this, this graduated sort of good, better, best of what we find in this. And the first is this. Rather than being blessed and thinking about your allegiances, you know, when we walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, what does that mean? It means that are we listening to the word? Or are we listening to the enduring, infallible, inerrant word of God, which is what we need for faith and practice? Are we allowing ourselves to be um, driven along by a secular ideology rather than by the Word of God? So again, where do we find wisdom? Do we find it within the Word of God or do we find it in the world? And what happens is when we begin to give adherence to this counsel from wicked men, it causes our minds to then actually go into our behavior where it says, nor stands in the way of sinners. So once we've thought about this wickedness, it becomes a behavioral thing where we're standing in the way of sinners. Now, what that means is not that we're standing in the way, meaning that we're blocking them from sinning, but we're actually placing ourselves in sort of a pathway of sin. And what happens is when you, get, when you place yourself in a pathway of sin, you will be led to sin. 
It's in you sort of being brought along, sort of the, the current of the day, the current of the stream of sinfulness just begins to carry you along. It's, it's a similar way uh, when you go to the beach as a young child and you go out and you're playing in the waves. And all of a sudden, I remember being panic-stricken because after you play in the waves for you know, 30 minutes, an hour, you're sort of being brought along through the coast. And your parents don't change where they are, right? But you, while you're in the ocean, are being sort of drifting along. And as a young child, you'll look up and all of a sudden you recognize, I don't recognize anybody in front of me and my parents are not going to be very happy that I am no longer to be seen from shore. Or if you're a child and you're like, man, I'm, I, my parents just left me. You're panic-stricken, and you come up to the shore, and you, you look for a lifeguard, and you go, what's going on? And that's what happens in this pathway of wickedness when you follow these, these men. And then what happens is the ultimate, and this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones called the, um, it's sort of the, um, the degenerating effects of sin. So you're thinking it, you're doing it, but then all of a sudden now you're sit, seated, and Lloyd-Jones would say, now you're seated in it because you can't even move. You're almost immobile because of your own sinfulness. And not only that, but now you actually become not just one who is being carried along, but you're actually at the fountainhead of this stream of sin because you are sitting in the seat of scoffers and mocking that which is good. You, you are mocking the Word of God. You are saying the Word of God cannot be applicable. It cannot be relevant for today's world. And so rather than uplift it, rather than rooting yourself deep within the Word of God, you begin to mock it and dismiss it, and you also cause other people to stumble. And we begin to think that, you know, you know parts of the Bible are just optional. You know, they're cultural. And we can, like Thomas Jefferson did when um, when he was reading his Bible, he would take different parts of the Bible and he would just rip out whole sections or take an exacto knife or scissors or whatever they used back then. And he would cut out, you know, portions of it. And his Bible that he cut out portions that he didn't agree with or didn't like is still in Monticello today. And what's amazing is that the mockers and scoffers who are showing you his Bible uplift him as a paragon of virtue and a paragon of truthfulness. And that's sad. That's sad that we, we take the word of God and we, we extricate different things and we're like, you know, I don't, really, I don't really want to believe that, so I just, I'm not going to worry about it. You know, grace covers over everything, right? You know, might I sin like, you know, grace might abound? You know, Paul says, no, no. Now, it does say this, though. The question becomes ranking our allegiances. So where do you place your allegiance? Are there any mockers or scoffers or sinners or wicked people? Is there anything that's contrary to the Word of God? I, I love what the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin as. It says, you know, what is sin? And this is what, how the, the confession, written in 1647, uh, describes it. It says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, the first part, I just kind of say it really fast sometimes. I don't really think about it. But here's this. Sin is anti, any want of conformity unto, which means sin is not wanting to conform your values to the Lord's values. It is not wanting to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So when we read in the Word of God that, you know, 
um, we're supposed to honor the Sabbath. And we go, ah, I don't want to honor the Sabbath. I'm not worried about that. We go, that's a sin, you know? Now, please hear me. There's, there's grace. There's grace and there's forgiveness and there's the love of Christ. But at the same time, there's blessedness. Blessed, blessedness. Again, it's the thousand-gallon bucket from heaven that falls upon the children of God when they meditate, when they meditate day and night on the law of the Lord. Now, when we, let me go back to allegiances again because I'm not quite done with that yet. I think today that we are living in terms of the ideology, I think that we in the church, that we have, and I'm just going to put a, a few adjectives together, I think that we oftentimes allow ourselves to be in a fear-laden, modern, secular cynicism, and that has gripped the church. It is a fear-laden, modern, secular cynicism. And rather than tapping into the ide- rather than tapping into this particular ideology, I think that we are called. Matter of fact, I know that we are called to root ourselves into Jesus. Now, let me let me describe that fear laden. By fear laden, I mean this: is that the world is constantly getting you to the point where we are on our phones, we are on media, and what we I find within the context of the church is that we are riveted by the fearfulness of what might happen to us. We're just worried about that. And, 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 and you know what? Fear sells. Fear drives what is coming across your phones and your TVs and everything else. And because it sells and advertiser, advertisers want what sells, you will continue to see fear mongering occur. But brothers and sisters, rather than being fearful... What is it, child of God, that you have to fear? Because here's the deal. If you die in Christ, you win. You win. The second thing I I, I noticed is, is that this modern self, you know, thinking that, you know, through my external circumstances, I can actually... um, attain happiness and joy. And we know that, I mean, what happens to somebody uh, when they're maybe 25 and they think, you know, if if I just have a million dollars, I will have enough money for retirement. When they get to a million dollars, they're thinking, really need two. Somebody who gets to two really needs four. Somebody who has four, I don't know, I haven't met them yet. You know, I mean, but, but that's what we're seeing, right? Now, this idea of the secular age, you know, a fear-laden, modern, secular cynicism is this. This secular idea is that we are getting wisdom from outside the Word of God rather than from inside the Word of God. And then the idea of cynicism is this, is this cynicism that is really crippling the church is that we have this distrusting or disparaging idea of the motives of others. And we show contempt uh, because we distrust everyone. You know, cynicism and disappointment in this life lead us to think like Shakespeare's Macbeth when he speaks about life. He says, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That is where this fear-laden, modern, secular cynicism leads us. And I don't want to live like that. 
And the Bible says we don't have to. Because Jesus came and died that we might have his joy and that it might be full. Now, thinking through that, the third R is this. We need to root ourselves in the word of God. Now, when, you, when you're looking at Psalm 1, you know, it says in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the, there's this idea of delight, and, and John Stott says this delight is an indication of the new birth. For the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And as a result of the inward regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, however, the godly find the godly find that they love the law of God simply because it conveys to them the will of their God. They do not rebel against its exacting demands. Their whole being approves and endorses it. Delighting in it, the godly will meditate it, meditate on it, and pour over it constantly day and night. So this, this idea of delighting in the law of the Lord is, again, the metaphor in verse 3 is this. He is like a tree, and this is the, the person who is happy, joyful, full, satisfied. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Now, the idea there in, in verse 3 of Psalm 1 is that you have taken a tree that is probably not flourishing, a tree that is probably on the verge of death, and you are taking that tree and you are transplanting it to a place where there is life and there is water that allows it to, to receive the nutrients that it needs in order to flourish. I mean, that really is the idea and the symbol for us. You know, when I think about this idea of the regenerating work of the Spirit in the life of a believer, it actually allows us to delight in the law of the Lord. Let me, let me give you just a couple of examples. Um, Psalm 119 is, is a sweet place for me that I've, I've spent a lot of time just dwelling upon. Psalm 119 um, says this um, in verse 35. It says, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it, right? That I would delight in the word of God. That when I open the word of God, I realize that it is a love letter from my father to me, his child. And my father who loves me wants to pour forth grace upon my soul. And so as I read this letter, I delight in it. When was the last time you picked up the Bible and realized that your father has good things to say to you? And that when you open it, he's instructing and giving food for your soul so that you might have joy, joy that overflows to those around you. You know, there's something significant um, in getting a note, or especially a handwritten note, from your mom or your dad or somebody who loves you. I mean, I don't mean like a text or an email, but I mean a handwritten note, and you, and you get it, and you don't read it once, and you probably don't read it twice, you read it several times, and then you place it in a position where you can read it on a regular basis. That's the Word of God. Now, what's interesting to me is that, um, and, and again, I'm, um, 
Some of us, rather than opening up the love letter of the Lord and recognizing that it is a delight to us, we'll say things like this. I just don't have time to read the Word of God. You know what that is? That is a lie, smells like smoke, and it's from the pit of hell, okay? And we have allowed ourselves to buy into that. We have time to immerse ourselves within the Word of God. If you've got time to check scores, you've got time to be in the Bible. If you've got time to do the Wordle every day, just a few people, some people don't even know what it is, so I'm not trying to tempt you, you know, then you have time to actually read your Bible. If you have time to check your Facebook status, you have time to read the Bible, to immerse yourself into the love letter that your Father has given you. Please do it. It will be a delight to your soul. Again, Psalm 119, you know, I think about this as, as I, and sometimes I'll just journal this. Psalm 119, verse 25, I think this is the, the, what happens within our own lives sometimes. Verse 25 says, my soul clings to the dust. My soul clings to the dust of this world. It, it's clinging to it. Give me life according to your word. Give me life according to your word. Let me be reminded of the promises and the love and the sustaining power of grace in my life. Let me be reminded that Jesus died on the cross for me. Let me be reminded that the eternal glory that is promised will, will happen and that God always keeps his promises. Remind me of those things. Or I think about um, the other one is this in verse 37. How about this one? This could be, you know, one that we just put everywhere. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. I mean, that, that could have been why, you know, Neil Postman wrote a book in the 1980s called Amusing Ourselves to Death, right? It's a great book, and it's prophetic for our day even then. And he says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and what we find, again, in Psalm 1 is that we are called to be rooted into the Word of God. And here's, here's what happens when this occurs. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Now, what's significant about that, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, it's not saying that storms and drought and difficulty and trials will not happen. But rather, when they do happen, and they will, that they are planted by streams of water. And that in the midst of the, the difficulty of life, because again, your happiness and blessedness is not based upon your external circumstances, but rather it is based upon who you are in Christ. It says, its leaf does not wither, which means it's an evergreen tree. And that's the, the beauty of, of, of a tree that's bearing fruit in its season and also of a tree whose leaf does not wither. Because when a, when a tree has you know, leaves or evergreen or needles or whatever you want to call it, you know, when you're in the midst of a drought, you can find shade underneath an evergreen tree. I've, you know, one of my favorite places to go is Sedona, Arizona. And we've been there when it's really, really hot at times. We went in June one year and it's hot in Sedona. Uh, not as hot as Phoenix. Phoenix is crazy hot. Um, but in Sedona, when we're hiking, it's, it's wonderful to find evergreen or these cedar trees because these cedar trees are not real tall, but they do provide shade. 
And so one of the benefits is that when you are like a tree planted by streams of living water, you actually benefit the people around you. You actually provide shade to those around you who are suffering. And not only does, do you provide shade, but think about a tree that bears fruit. A tree that bears fruit is not bearing fruit for itself, but it's bearing fruit for someone else. So when you are a shade tree bearing fruit, you are actually bearing fruit so that the people around you that are surrounding you are actually being blessed because you are manifesting love joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And in the midst of the body of Christ, we need to align ourselves with people like that. You ever been around people who are like a shade tree and a fruitful place for you to dwell underneath? You want to spend more time with them because they continue to bless your soul. So not only do you align yourself with those types of people, but you also want to be one of those trees as well. You know, Isaiah calls it, we want to be an oak of righteousness compared to the chaff that the wind blows away. The chaff which will be, you know, really that's describing the destruction and the judgment of God. Because when you align yourself with Jesus, when you connect yourself with Jesus, not only are you um, promised joy, an eternal joy, but you're promised joy for here. You know, let, me, let me say this, um, I'm, I'm winding down. Today, all of us are looking to tap into something that will give us life. Everybody is. Whether you're here, but also, also everyone in the world is looking to tap into something that will give them life. And when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, you must be born again. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, it says that they will remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And in Ezekiel 37, we see these dry bones getting life and flesh. And that's the work of the Spirit within us. And for those of us who have been born again, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, there is this opportunity to, to live in the midst of joy. I was, uh, let me conclude with this story. So um, about six months ago, um, I had this father come on, um, come on base, and uh, he came in to my office, and you know, if you don't know, I'm, I'm also a reserve Air Force chaplain. So some of the stories I have, um, so this guy comes in, and I'm talking to this guy, and he's having a really, really hard day. And, and one of the benefits of being a chaplain is guys come in from the military and we're wearing a uniform, so there's like-mindedness. And he's saying, I, I don't know what to do. I'm really having a hard time. But this guy's a, a believer. Um, and he's really having a hard time with his kids, his young kids, like probably three years old and five years old, and you know, marital struggles and some other stuff. And so we started talking about his children, and I can see his face shining. And I, and I asked him this question. I said, you know, where do you go to church with your children? Again, he's a born-again believer. He said, you know, I came to faith in Christ in California. I love Jesus. I said, where do you take your kids to church? And he goes, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't take my kids to church. And I went, you, you, don't, you don't, how come? And he told me this. His kids are three and five. He says, well, I want my children to be able to make their own decisions about their faith. I'm like, okay. I said, do you, do you make your children go to bed on time? Do you make your children take a bath? How come you don't give your children the decision to like be clean when they want to be clean? Or you know, go to bed when they want to go to bed or eat exactly what they want to eat? I said, but, but think about it. You've just told me that, that Jesus has changed your life. That Jesus 
has forgiven you. That Jesus, you know, is your Lord and King. Like, this is the good news for your soul, right? And he goes, yes. I said, then either, I said, I can't figure it out. I said, either you don't love your children, and I don't think that's the case, or you're struggling to believe the promises of God that what Jesus offers you is real. I said, take your children to church. Give them the very best gift that you can give them. Don't give them what the world says to give them, but give them what the Word of God says to give them. Give them Jesus. Give them the Word of life. Because you want your children to be like trees planted by streams of living water who yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. You don't want your children to be like chaff that the wind blows away. Root them in the Word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the way that you love us and care for us. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to, to root ourselves into your word. Father, may we believe that happiness is attainable. Father, may we, on a regular basis, you know, determine where our allegiances lie. And Father, may we root ourselves in Jesus. Father, Jesus, when we have Jesus, we have everything. And Father, when we don't have Jesus, but we have the world, we have nothing. Father, help us. Save us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.